Uh, last week, we finished our series called Hashtag Gratitude. And I want to thank you, uh, those of you who uh, posted things on social media. Uh, that was really great. We had a lot of buzz around our church and around our community about that. And my hope is that you will continue to uh, walk in that place of gratitude because that is such a foundational spiritual discipline. We're going to get back into 1 Peter this morning. We interrupted 1 Peter when we started our series on, uh, on gratitude, and so we're, we're digging back into 1 Peter. And uh, I want to remind you of the premise of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is all about us having a transformed identity. Uh, and our basic identity is that we are resident aliens. Uh, that means our true citizenship is in heaven. And we are living under God's eternal care. He chose us. He loved us before the foundation of the world. And we are endowed with the potential for power, the potential for living in the kingdom power, the spiritual power that comes through the risen Christ and his outpoured Holy Spirit. And so I mentioned in the Peter series that uh, Peter is written like a series of concentric circles. The transformed identity idea is in verses 1 and 2, but then he applies that to a relationship with God, with believers, then to the world, then he applies it to suffering, and then to the future. And so this morning what we do is we see how our transformed identity is applied to suffering. And so we want to look at 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 22. And I, I just have to warn you, these are very, very deep words. And I'm going to try to kind of net it out for you to make them as clear as they can, they can be. But, to be. but to begin, I want to tell you a little bit about a, a trip that Cindy took with our four kids, um, with, our, with four of our grandkids. Um, we, uh, had our, we had a bunch of grandkids here with us this summer, but in the last trip... My daughter, Sarah, uh, drove with Cindy from Bartlesville to Seattle with four young kids. Uh, that, that was crazy. It was, it was a long trip. It was, uh, and you can imagine uh, the amazing encounters. They, they saw the Grand Tetons. They went to Yellowstone. And all the things that you would expect to have happened did happen, like uh, going to the urgent care because one of the kids had an ear infection. And there was an elk in front of the urgent care, so you couldn't get in the front door, you had to go into the back door. Um, one of the kids puked on the carpet of the Airbnb. I didn't take a picture of that. Sydney didn't take a picture of that, so, but that, but, but, but that happened. Uh, but all along the way, uh, there were road signs. And, and you know the common road signs. These are the common road signs that we, often, that we often see on the road. But once you get into the upper west, other road signs begin to take shape. Like, like check out this one here. Road ends in water one mile ahead. Now, if you're driving along and you see that, you are just motivated to slow down and figure out what to do. Or here's another very effective one, speeding kills bears, or attention, because there's moose there. Now, there's some hidden, some hidden you know, subliminal things in these signs, because uh, what about me? I mean, the bear in, in my car. Yes, I, I know, we, we, should, we should love the animals, but these are very effective, uh, very effective signs. 
Um, and then you, you find really weird, quirky signs that are sort of fun. Like, like here's, here's one, Lover's Lane, dead end. <laughs> or one that says, elderly people, and there's a sign for the cemetery. So I'm not quite sure where, where those were. But, but I, I, I want you to, to, to think about the function of signs. Signs let us know what's ahead, and they allow us to, to prepare. And what Peter does in the, the verses we're going to look at is he gives us four road signs for how we handle opposition. And this is not any kind of opposition or any kind of, of problem or suffering like being audited or being anxious or stubbing your toe. The opposition that he's going to talk about is the opposition that comes because you identify as a follower of Christ. How do you handle that kind of opposition? And Peter gives us four signs that help us know how to do this. And we're going to look at those signs. And again, there's some really deep verses here, and I'm going to try to make them as clear as I can. But here's the first sign. The first sign is stop. The first sign is stop. And what that means is don't invite unnecessary opposition. You know, when you're living your life as a follower of Jesus, don't invite unnecessary opposition. So here's the verse. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, I will tell you that the way this is written grammatically, it suggests a negative answer. Like, okay, nobody is going to harm you if you're zealous for good. Of course not. So what Peter is saying is like, okay, so if you do good, who's going to harm you? Well, probably nobody. Now, that's a surprising statement coming from the lips of the Apostle Peter because he knew a lot of people who did good and were harmed. So, so for instance, John the Baptist, he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He did tremendous good. He uh, announced the Messiah. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he did things that were profoundly good. But what happened to John? Even though he did good he became the victim of a drinking contest. And in the drinking contest, Herod's stepdaughter was dancing seductively before the dinner guests at the palace called Macareus on the shores of the Dead Sea. And Herod was uh, intoxicated, and he said, I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom. Well, he was not going to do that. But he's just saying, I'm going to be super generous. But what do you ask for in a time like that? Well, this young girl's mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So 15 minutes later, John the Baptist's head is on a platter. He did good, but he died for it. So Stephen is another example, Acts 6.3. We see that Stephen was a good man. It says he was a good man, a man with a great reputation. He did good by serving widows in the daily distribution of food. However, Stephen... Uh, was so powerful in his use of the scriptures and so powerful in the spirit that he confounded the Pharisees and they draw him be drew him before the Sanhedrin and he ended up being stoned. He did good and he was, he was killed. Peter likewise did good and he was opposed. God was supernaturally working through Peter to such an extent that Peter would walk and if his shadow hit somebody who was sick, that person was instantly healed. I, I've got a, a shadow up here from these, from these lights. And um, if, if my shadow were to hit somebody who was sick and they were healed, that'd be a pretty amazing thing. 
That, that'd be, that'd be a, a profound good. But I would tell you that Peter um, um, was, he, he sparked a lot of jealousy and they arrested the disciples. They cast them into prison. Peter got away with beating, being beaten up the first time, but the second time it was far more serious. And he, he suffered, he was opposed. And what's happening right now in the culture where Peter is writing this letter is that Emperor Nero is going from sane to insane. He's starting to persecute a little bit. He's about ready to go insane. When he does go insane, he's going to kill a lot of Christians, burning many to death, burning them alive as an act of defiance. And so Peter's writing this letter, and he's, and, and he's saying, who's there to harm you if you do good? Well, it's possible that a lot of people could harm us. So what is Peter saying? Peter's using this as, not like a promise, but as a proverb. And the two are different. It's not a promise, it's a proverb. And, and what, he's, what he's giving us is a general principle about life, and the idea is if I engage in proactive good, to my friends, to my neighbors, to my work associates. It's highly likely that people are not going to oppose me because I'm going to be a conduit of goodwill. It's probable that I'm going to limit opposition. We see other passages about this. Here's one, Jeremiah 27, 29, verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, for in its welfare you will have welfare. He's telling them to do proactive good in Babylon because if you do, odds are it's going to go well with you. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, second part of the verse. Always seek to do good to one another, that would be the believers, and to everyone. And the idea is that if, if I am consistently doing good to people in my sphere of influence, it will tend to limit opposition. It's not a promise it's a proverb. It's a general principle about life. So I, I, want, I want you to imagine two people for a second. Person number one works in a corporate setting. Person number one mentors young employee, younger employees. He remembers the birthdays and the anniversaries of the members of his team. He knows the names of the children of the people who work with him. He volunteers for extra trainings to equip him to improve. When holidays come, he, he leads teams to do the work that the company is doing within the community. He's a proactive conduit of good. Will that person be opposed for his faith? Probably not. It's possible, but probably not. Imagine person number two, who also works in the same company, uh, but he's a big talker. He talks a lot about his church. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. He talks about his moral values. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. He talks about positions of religious influence he's had in the community. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But, but um, then he talks about things in such a manner that it sounds like he's being judgmental and condescending. He talks about things in such a manner that it seems as if he's smug and better than other people because he's a follower of Jesus. Is it possible that that person is not engendering goodwill within the company, but creating a sense of maybe cynicism and contempt? Is it possible that he could be opposed for his faith? It's possible. It's possible. 
What Peter is saying is, if you are a proactive conduit of good, you tend to limit opposition. And so the idea is, don't, don't invite unnecessary opposition to your faith. How, how do you do that? You can do it through hypocrisy, claiming one thing and acting another way, through legalism, through judgmentalism, through negative attitudes, through poor work. There's many ways that you can do that, but don't invite unnecessary opposition. Uh, conversely, be a proactive conduit of good within your neighborhood, your, your place of work, within your marriage, within, within your family. If you build up that, that sense of goodwill, it's a good possibility that you will not be actively opposed. However... <laughs> Sometimes you will. And so the next road sign is go. First, you, you stop. You don't invite unnecessary opposition. Second road sign is you go. When opposition does come, the first thing you do is you recommit yourself to the lordship of Christ. Here's what he says. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So he starts off with a promise. And the promise is that if you suffer as a Christian, you will be blessed. Peter does not tell us how this happens in this verse. Doesn't tell us how. He just tells us that it will happen, that we, we will be blessed. To understand how we're blessed, we've got to turn back to Matthew 5.11, where Matthew, Jesus in Matthew 5.11 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a great promise. So the idea is that when, we, when we're persecuted, we are going to simultaneously encounter God's kingdom breaking through into our life. Now, what does that mean? How precisely does that work? Remember, God's kingdom right now, his kingdom is coming, it's future, but right now, God's kingdom is the life of the future breaking into the present. God's kingdom is the invisible presence and power of God that can break through into our life. Amen. And what he's saying, what Jesus is saying, is that when you are persecuted for your faith, God's kingdom presence and power breaks through in that moment in a way that blesses you. Well, how, how might that happen? Well, sometimes he'll give you the words to say that you don't have. I've had that happen to me where I got opposed and I felt like God was giving me words in the moment that I knew did not come from practice or background. God's kingdom broke through in, in that moment. Sometimes he gives you the patience to wait and not be angry. Sometimes he gives you fresh power to act. And, and as that opposition continues, the kingdom breakthrough continues to come, and, you, do, and you, you experience new things about God. That's Jesus' promise in Matthew 5, verse, verse 11. So if that's the case, what Peter says next makes all sorts of sense. Don't be, don't be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm in this place of blessing. I'm under pressure. It's not comfortable. You might feel anxiety at first, but you're blessed because God's kingdom power is breaking through in your life in a fresh way, okay? Therefore, it's a lot easier to not continue to be troubled, but to say, okay, Lord Jesus, you're holy. Um, 
you are the one who rules over my, over, over my life. So Peter is urging us to do something in our hearts. Now, now what are our hearts in the Bible? Your, the heart in the Bible is your executive center. It's the place from which you make a choice. I'm always choosing, choosing, choosing me or the Lord, choosing to love or choosing to pull away. I'm always making choices in my life. The heart is the place from which you make that choice in biblical language. And what he's doing is he's saying, in your hearts, affirm, choose, declare that Christ is holy. So in a place of opposition, I, I might say, um, God, um, I want to thank you that you, you knew this would happen. I want to thank you that you knew what was about ready to take place. Uh, Lord, um, I thank you that you are God. I am going to submit to you. I'm going to walk with you through this difficulty. Now, that might mean that I, I don't catastrophize the future. I don't say, oh my gosh, if this is happening now, what's going to happen a month from now? I don't catastrophize the future. It also might mean that I, I love my enemy and I pray for the person who's persecuting me in such a way that um, I am walking consistent with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies and pray for those who are persecuting you. Is that counterintuitive? Yeah, I mean, when you're opposed, you, you, you want to you bow up, you know, and you want to power up, and you want to say, wait a second, you can't treat me that way. And what, what Peter is saying, no, wait, stop, uh, you know, uh, you know, honor Christ as holy in, in, in your life, and start doing the right thing, loving your enemy. Um, it also means that I honor people in authority, even if they don't deserve it. Look, does everybody in authority deserve your honor? No. It's not that they don't. Sometimes people in authority are just bad people. Sometimes they're irritating people. Sometimes they're unwise people. Sometimes they are profoundly immature people. Not everybody in authority deserves your honor. But why can you as a follower of Jesus honor people in authority who don't deserve it? Well, because uh, they're made in God's image. Uh, because um, the reality is our persecutor is somebody for whom Christ died. Uh, and the sobering reality is that when they die, they face judgment, and we at least should be a little bit compassionate upon that, even if they're doing wrong things to us. So beyond that, I think we can, we can actually visualize Jesus in that time of opposition. Like, how many times have you, have you thought about this? Maybe you never thought about this. A person is opposing you for your faith. Is it possible to envision the resurrected Jesus hovering over that person? You just see them hovering over that person. You say, all right, Lord, I'm like, I'm really mad at this person here. But I'm visualizing you seated on your throne, hovering over that person. And I'm realizing, Lord Jesus, you are in control over this situation. Listen, I think, I think the, the discipline, the spiritual discipline of visualization is really good. Because Jesus invited that discipline when he said, Our Father who are in heaven, who is in heaven. The Greek word is heavens, plural. Jesus is inviting us to visualize God as Father. That was not common when he said this. And he's inviting us to visualize God as being in the heavens, 
which in New Testament language means that he's very near. God invites visualization. I think it's entirely plausible that you could visualize the resurrected Jesus right above the person who is opposing you. Say, Lord Jesus, you're in control over the situation. I'm going to honor this person who's opposing me, and I'm going to honor you at the same time, and I'm going to submit to your sovereignty in this situation. I'm going to honor you as being holy. So you got stop, don't invite unnecessary opposition, go, submit to the lordship of Jesus. And now we got a, got a third sign, and that is slow down. Slow down. Go slow. Be ready to give the kind of answer that slows down hostility so that calmness prevails. How many times have you ever been in an argument with somebody and you've escalated the argument? I have done that. Apparently none of the rest of you have done that. Cindy is, 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 is not here this morning. She is with our, several of our grandchildren. Cindy would affirm that I have done that from time to time in our marriage. I said time, from time to time, like, not often. <laughs> no big deal. There were times where I escalated arguments. It's so easy to do that. And what, what uh, Peter is telling us is slow down and don't escalate. Here's how he says it. Always be prepared to make a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with animosity and contention, right? Doesn't say that. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. He's telling us to slow down the process so that a calmness prevails. Now, this is written in a way that, that maybe hope, hopefully makes you want to confront yourself because it assumes that people are going to ask you about your faith. And I've had a good number of people have told me, people aren't asking me about my faith. Like, what's wrong with me? And I think verse 15 gives us the answer. He is assuming that we are zealous for the good. If we're zealous for the good if we're doing proactive good, if we're a conduit of God's common grace in the culture, then people are going to begin to ask us about some of those things. So what are you zealous for? Well, you can be zealous for OU football. They're doing really well this season. You can be zealous for Dallas Cowboys football, but they're not doing well at all this season. We'll see tonight. Maybe you're zealous for your new car or your new grandchildren. What do you do with that for which you're zealous, you, you talk about it. You talk about it. What I'm zealous for, I talk about. And so the idea is that I'm, I'm talking and I'm doing the proactive good, and maybe some of those people are going to ask me about my faith. Case in point, 10 years ago, we renovated uh, what used to be the mid-high, the, the teacher's lounge in the mid-high. On Friday morning, the teacher's lounge was drab and colorless and uninviting. And then about 25, 30, 40 people came in and blitzed the teacher's lounge at the Bartlesville Mid-High, now Madison, now Madison Middle School. We blitzed the teacher's lounge, and when it opened on Monday morning, people walked in and said, what? This is incredible. Like, what just happened? And they found out who did it. Wow, okay, Grace Community Church did it. 
Why do they do that? And so we had, we had people write us letters and notes and cards. And the best card I received was the person who said, you know, for years we were not working together. And now we're starting to work together collaboratively as teachers because of what you did. We had all sorts of people asking us what we did and, and why we did it. So we continued to serve. We, uh, we painted the walls in the lunchroom, and we even took the gum off the underside of all the tables. You wouldn't believe how much gum was on the underside of those tables. Uh, so after a couple of years, the principal of the school very kindly and graciously said, here's the master key to the Bartlesville Mid-High. You tell us when and where you want to serve. You can come in any time. There it is, master key. Now, if we had gone in and said, hey, we want to serve. Give us the master key. Well, they would have said, no way. But after three years of, of generous sacrificial service, they did that. Then the principal approached us again and he said, we have some at-risk kids. Would, you have members in your church who would want to mentor those at-risk kids? We know you're a faith-based organization. That's fine. And we, we had some opportunities to mentor some at-risk kids. So why did, why did that opportunity happen? We were zealous to serve that particular institution through which all of our students in the city have to go. At, 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 at the time, that was, that was the, the case. So um, you're going to be asked if you serve well. Uh, but sometimes the Spirit is going to prompt people to ask. I, my son has told me that that's happened to him in North Africa where my son, the quality of my son and daughter-in-law's service to a couple or to a series of individuals has prompted that person to say, what are you guys doing here in North Africa? Like your Arabic is perfect. Are you, are you Muslim? No, we're, we're Christians. So why are you here? Sometimes the Spirit will prompt somebody else to ask. Whether it's service or the Spirit, you've got to be ready to give an answer. So going, going back to this verse, it sounds like you got to have a PhD in apologetics or theology to give an answer, right? Be prepared to make a reasoned defense. In fact, the, the, the word defense is the word from which we get our word apologetics, a reasoned defense of the faith. So do you need a PhD in theology or apologetics to do that? No, you don't. Because the word that he uses to, the, to make a defense is the same word that Paul uses when he tells the story of his faith journey. In other words, to give a defense, it could mean a reasoned defense, but the way Paul uses it, or the way Luke uses it later on in Acts, the idea is you tell your story, your faith journey. How many of you could say, yeah, I have a faith journey. I got a story to tell. Hopefully everybody does, right? All of us have a journey. Like, here's, here's what I was, Here's what led me to my, my crisis of faith. Here's when I received Jesus, and here's what's happened since then. We all have a story to tell. Now, some of, your, some of you know your story really well, and some of you, it's kind of vague. You know, you kind of maybe you've told it a little, bit, a little bit before. But the idea is be ready to share your story, and you've got to be really thoughtful about it. Like a reasoned defense means you're thoughtful about how you tell your faith story. It's not easy. So I was in Russia a number of years ago, and I'm going door to door, sharing the gospel in 
a Soviet-style apartment complex, apartment block. Everybody opened the door. When, you, when, when my translator said, Rod McElvain is here, he's an American from Oklahoma, and he just wants to give you greetings. Everybody opened the door, because everybody wanted to, to meet an American. And so after a while, my, 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 I, I had a translator and a Russian Bible student. The Russian Bible student said, people don't say Rod very, very nicely. They say, Rod, Rod, like you're clearing your throat. It, it's, it wasn't a flattering way to say my name. <laughs> he said, Rod, I think it would be better if you would spend more time sharing your story. I said, okay. I had to like regroup, you know, and share my faith story. And so after the next five houses, I got much better at it. And he said, perfect. He said, we Russians respond to stories. Well, not just Russians. It's like everybody in the face of the, of the globe responds to stories. And so I had to I give my faith story. And I've, I've often said, you need to have a a one-minute faith story, a five-minute version, and a 30-minute version. And you, and, but you have to work at those stories in order to get those to, to a place where you can really speak those stories well. So I've, I've got, a, I've got a, like a one-minute faith story. I tell people, you know, I, I grew up in a faith-based household. I was very warm to the Christian faith. When I, was in junior high, when I was a junior in high school, I had a world-lit teacher who was an atheist who tried to actively convert me to atheism. She was brilliant. And a lot of people in my class were actively converting to atheism in the class. I realized I had to confront myself. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Grew up in a faith-based household. What am I going to do? I discovered the writings of C.S. Lewis. I read the Chronicles of Narnia, understood the, the meaning of the cross from the symbolism in that book, and then discovered mere Christianity. And so I, I tell people that, that it was through C.S. Lewis that I came to know Jesus Christ, C.S. Lewis and my mom. I want to put my mom in that category, C.S. Lewis and my mom, because my mom, my mom did some things that really helped me along the way. But, you, but look, you've got to have a story to tell. And that story may, may need to be adjusted slightly, not the, not the essential you know, truth of it, but the way you present it depending upon your audience. But you got to be ready with that yes, so that you can say it at a moment's notice. And then you got to show gentleness and respect. And the best way to show gentleness and respect is by asking the right questions. So when somebody comes at you with, I don't believe that God exists. I don't believe in the Bible. I think suffering proves that God is either a bad God or he's non-existent. You know, you, you, you come at him with questions. That slows the process down. What do you mean by that? Where did you get your information? How'd you arrive at your conclusion? How do you know for sure if you're right? What happens if you're wrong? Do you think that's the whole story? All that does is slow the process down so that people start getting into conversation mode as opposed to being in confrontation mode. And that leads us to the next road sign, and that is know your destination. On long road trips, you're going to see the sign for your destination, and Peter wants us to know what our destination is. 
Here's where we get into some deep waters. It doesn't start deep, but it'll get deep. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Look, your destination is based upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He did what he did to bring you to God. That's why he died on the cross for your sins. And so no matter what opposition you go through, you've got to know what your destination is. And your destination is heaven. You are a citizenship of heaven right now. You are destined to the new heavens and the new earth. The power of heaven is breaking into your life on a regular basis through answered prayer and through the power of the Spirit. So when you're being opposed, you've got to remember your destiny. Uh, how? However, um, now, now we get into the hard part because he wants to tell us about the power of that destiny, but now he goes deep. He says, in which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Clear as a bell? Those are some really hard verses. So let me, let me just see if I can make it as clear as possible. Um, in Genesis 6, in the days of Noah, evil demonic spirits determined that they would inhabit human bodies and they had an evil intent. They wanted to bear children through human women with the goal of fully dominating the human race. Okay. So evil spirits are going to inhabit men. The men are going to get with the women, and they're going to build a race of people that are fully human, but who are profoundly evil, and they want to dominate the human race by doing that. So the spirits were very successful, and a race of people were created called the Nephilim. The Nephilim were fully human, but because they had been demonically conceived, they were deeply entrenched in evil. They looked amazing on the outside. They looked heroic on the outside. They looked big and powerful on the outside. They were tall. They were ripped with muscle, and they amassed great power. But it was terrible for the human race. And consequently, at the flood, God judges the evil spirits who did this, and he judges them by permanently confining them to a region of hell that was locked. They were locked into that place. It was a, an abyss that was dark, and it was, uh, it was a place to confine these evil spirits because apparently God knew they would, they would do this again. That abyss was so, so terrible that in Mark chapter 5, when Jesus is going to cast the, the demons out of the pigs, they, they, they begged Jesus, don't, don't send us into that, that, that abyss, presumably that place where these evil spirits in the days of Noah were, were, were confined. After Jesus' resurrection, he announces his victory to those evil spirits who had been confined, like a, a cosmic in-your-face, you've lost, and the Son of God has, has won. So what, why, why would Peter tell us that story? The reason why is, is Jesus' victory is so great that he has defeated even the most powerful demonic beings. That's how great the victory of Jesus is. It's not just a victory over sin and death. It's a victory over evil, demonic forces that we don't even know that much about. 
You might even say, well, Peter, why do you get so complicated? It's because this story was very well known in Peter's day. Uh, some of you have read Harry Potter. You know all about Harry Potter. Some of you have seen all the Star Wars epic movies. You know all about Star Wars, or you know the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Well, everybody that is reading this book knew about that story and the commentaries that had come from that story. We don't know about it, but Peter's readers did. And what Peter is saying is, look, Jesus is so powerful. He defeated the darkest and most powerful demonic beings, but he's not done yet. He, he says, and this gets more confusing, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, having been subject to him. What he's saying is this, because you are now in Christ, baptism means immersion, because you are now in Christ, you are now with Jesus at the right hand of the Father, angels, authorities, and powers are subject to Jesus. By implication, they're subject to us as well. Now, Peter didn't say that, but Paul says that in, in, in Ephesians. So the bottom line is this. You got to know your destination. Your destination is not a destination of failure and defeat and pain and bitterness and anguish and sorrow. Your destination is at the right hand of the Father because of the death of Christ and the victory that Christ accomplished on the cross. Yay! Yay. So while we are being opposed, we got to remember our destination. It's a destination of, of power and authority. So with that in mind, we got to remember, it's all, it's all about the victory. It's all about the victory. So some brief takeaways. First of all, the main idea. If you proactively do good in your community, you're going to tend to limit opposition. So... Don't invite unnecessary opposition. If opposition does come, you got a roadmap. Recommit to Jesus as Lord. Defend your faith by telling your story. Remember your identity as somebody walking in Jesus' victory procession. That's how you handle opposition in the Christian life. Okay, a couple of takeaways. Think about tangible acts of good you can do in your corner of the world. Look, all of us would love to change the world. But you are not the President of the United States... Uh, you're not a senator or a congressman. You're not a dictator. Do we have any dictators in here? Maybe you want to be a dictator, but no. No, no you, you live in this city by God's sovereignty, and what God expects is for you to do something tangibly good in your corner of the world, which presumably for most of us is Bartlesville, Oklahoma, USA. Where can you do that proactive good? Find places to do that and be zealous for it as a follower of Jesus. Second takeaway, prepare a 30-second reason why you're a Christian. Look, when, if somebody says, tell me why you're a believer in 30 seconds. Uh, kitty, give me a moment. It's really important you prepare something like this so that you can tell somebody in 30 seconds why you're a follower of Christ and a brief bit about your faith story. If you, if you do that, then you're going to be prepared. And then a third takeaway is when you're opposed, visualize the re resurrected Jesus as the one over the one who opposes you, right? So that person can look really intimidating, like they know more than you know, and they're powerful and mean, etc. Visualize Jesus over them. Say, all right, Lord Jesus, you're in control. 
I'm submitting to you, and I'm going to love this person in front of me. Amen. Let's stand for our closing prayer.